Don't change everything you do or really fundamentally what you do because of one year's events. We kind of always chase the tail of what happened last year. You know, if nine years out of 10 it worked, it's probably a good idea. You don't want to have something, you know, one year be a problem and really change everything about your farm. It really is that big picture. What happens over 10 years, 15, 20, kind of the span of your operation. I think that is fantastic advice. This is Around the Farm, the podcast about all things ag. I'm your host, Clint Schaffer, and today we're going to be talking with Mark Ryman from the Gothenburg Water Utilization Learning Center. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Glenn. How about you introduce yourself to our listeners? So I'm Mark Ryman. I'm the Learning Center Manager for the Bayer Water Utilization Learning Center in Gothenburg, Nebraska. Uh, It's a facility in western Nebraska where I get the opportunity to do really a lot of I'd say unique research work around kind of our dry conditions and then also have the opportunity to really showcase that to producers throughout the year. So you get that research aspect, but then we also get to really, really show it off to people throughout the growing season. Nice, nice. Now, now I would assume when you say water utilization, and if I'm thinking about Nebraska, I'm thinking center pivots. So I would assume there's uh, some 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 irrigation on this uh, on this farm as well. We have the ability to variable rate irrigate with a lot of our irrigation equipment. Uh, we use a lot of linears, so they're not pivots in that they don't spin in a circle, but they go in a straight line, so they help us manage our research projects oh. a little bit easier. And then we also have a lot of drip irrigation, so. We started the Learning Center. There wasn't as much, I'd say, innovation in the space of variable rate irrigation through sprinklers. We had the drip irrigation to kind of set that up initially, and now we've got kind of that nozzle-by-nozzle control on our irrigation systems. Where we farm at, we're in a, a little pocket of the Mississippi River bottom where there's a bunch of sand. Uh, and uh, so I'm actually in the heart of irrigation land in the middle of Western Illinois. So uh, you, you wouldn't think it, but there's a ton of center pivots around here. And I know a lot of folks are starting to get onto that, you know, variable rate uh, irrigation. Is it down to nozzle by nozzle now then? Yeah, there are options where it really can be a, a nozzle by nozzle setup. And it sort of depends on your field and variability, but um you can do it in banks of nozzles, maybe tie four, five, six together or something like that. Um, or you can go all the way down to the nozzle. And what a lot of farmers actually do is they just have the ability as their pivot goes around, they can vary the speed of that pivot so they reduce the rate of irrigation. So there's kind of all different levels you can go to as far as, I guess, how precise you want or how small you want the area to be that, that you irrigate. And we, for our research projects, we want to get down to some pretty small areas where we're trying to, you know, test one corn product or one soybean product versus another in some of those different environments we can create with it. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up the the testing aspect. I, I was kind of curious what what would you consider the overall mission for for the research facility then? So it really is to go after like our high plains challenges. Um, it could be irrigated, it could be dryland, but it really is to I take input from our farmers, go after those high plains challenges, and then kind of really help them out in their system. So whether that be, you know, utilizing water differently or something like that uh, through the irrigation piece, or it could be helping manage dry land better, 
could be using, you know, maybe looking at some of the newest bear products that are going to be available on those acres. And then the other thing that we really added over the past, I'd say two years, we've been, you know, typically in an area where they would say you can't really use cover crops because it's too dry. We've been starting to find ways to integrate those into our systems from a, you know, kind of a well overall uh, soil health, uh, carbon type of play that we can bring. And we're already doing a lot of no-till. How can we bring cover crops and some of those next steps into what we do here in the West? You know, I, I've heard some folks talk about that from a cover crop perspective. Is is there certain varieties or cocktail mixes that could actually help in the retention of water within the soil? It, it really is. A, I think it's a, a situational thing. Um, there's... There's just situations, and I think, you know, if you, if you pay attention to Twitter or cover crop sites, you're seeing with the really dry conditions this year where people are showing maybe it didn't matter what cover crop mix they planted or something, it did dry out the soil. And because we haven't had any rain since planting, which I think is a very rare condition for a lot of areas that are seeing that, um, you know, that's something where you're seeing kind of a negative impact from a cover crop. But if you've got that cover crop there, and, you know, it's, it's terminated and you get some rain, you get a lot better water infiltration. Um, you prevent some of that soil evaporation. So it may not necessarily be the cocktail mix that I think of, but it really is a little bit the situation. So if you're really dry in the spring and you don't get any rain, for us in the West, cover crops are going to be difficult to deal with unless we can irrigate. Um, but, you know, if you do have some of that rain, those cover crops really help you retain it help it infiltrate into the soil and then prevent it from evaporating so your crop can use it later. It's, it's one of those situational things where some years it, it really is a home run and other years it can start out looking like a pretty rough situation. I, I remember I was out at my uh, my buddy John's farm. He farms in between uh, Omaha and Lincoln and, uh, and he does some cover crops out there and we were taking uh, – temperature samples it was a bright sunshiny day one of those like 90 degree days right and uh and it was pretty interesting to see the difference of bare dirt temperature versus the temperature of of under a cover crop i mean i want to say there was like a 30 or 40 degree difference right on on what we were seeing uh just from that cover crop so i can imagine the evaporation would be a big big piece of that yeah it really does um it does help out with that i mean if you get a rain event or something like we had a little, so we measure rain in hundreds in the West. That's something you got to get used to. We say it rained 72 hundreds this weekend at the Learning Center, but, you know, it, it's dry on the soil surface where we're doing our tests where we've got tillage and things. But if you get into strip till where you got a lot of good residue cover or you go into no-till and no-till with cover crops, you're still, you know, preventing that moisture from evaporating and seeing, um, you know, those conditions where that would be available to the plants right under the soil surface there. But definitely in those scenarios where you got bare soil on a hot day, you can really see that temperature impact and it driving uh, what we see in terms of, um, well, evaporation. It's not running through the plant. It's not really being useful to you. It's just evaporating off the soil surface. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you, you mentioned you mentioned drip irrigation, Mark, and that's something I man I, I just have I have uh, little to no experience on on that. Is that something that is installed permanently? I mean, it is it under underground or is this something you're laying on top? 
So for us, for the most part, it would be permanent. It's like subsurface drip irrigation. So, and there's a lot of places where they've had it in 30 years, and essentially it's thin plastic tubing, you know, like on 30-inch, 40-inch, 60-inch spacings out there, um, maybe 12 inches below the soil surface, 14 inches below the soil surface, and it's got emitters, you know, every 12 inches that are just, slowly dripping that water out uh, under the surface for the plants. Once in a while, we also utilize um, surface drip. If we just need something short-term, we, we need to water an area that's typically dry land. Um, my guys complain about that when I, when I make them do something like that. you got to manually roll out drip tape. But once in a while, it is a nice, um, a nice addition. But for the most part, it's permanent, and it's a, a subsurface system uh, that, that you can use. Take us through what, what's a what's a day in your life like, Mark? Uh, what are what, what are kind of your day day to day activities? So I'm an agronomist at heart. I guess I would say I, I started, you know, as an agronomist in in college, and then I was the learning center agronomist here until basically from 2009 until just last year. But it really starts with you know checking out the fields, um, then communicating, working with my uh, team of agronomists and other staff here that are kind of working on what we need to do out in the field to keep everything looking nice. And it, it's, not just, um, it's not just all weed control and fertility and things like that. It is really thinking about how we can set up um, a nice experience for, for the, the people that come. So you want things to look nice. Um, you really want the, the demonstrations and that to make sense. So kind of a day is starting out, going and taking a look at the field, then working with the staff to make sure um, we kind of go through, uh, get our priorities for the day and get to work. And then, of course, there's also a lot of meetings and things like that involved with organizing everything else that, that needs to go on outside of the learning center. But it really is focused on you know, what we need to be doing out in the field so that we can get our research work done and give our customers that visit uh, the best experience possible. Explain to me how is the the interaction between the the local farmers around you and and the learning center? I mean, how much how much are are farmers you know kind of coming in and out and and bouncing ideas off of you or wanting to come see what you know what you're working on next? So I'd say every time we bring groups out, and it's not always uh, it's not always necessarily even just farmers, but we bring out like some of our environmental regulatory groups uh, in Nebraska, we have natural resource districts, farmers. So every time they're out um, for a visit, you know, we go through the fields and our goal is really to have an open discussion with them. So when you go out into the field, you really want it to be a learning experience. You don't want it to be just something where you're, you're spewing facts to somebody. And those are really boring and no fun. So we always want that two-way kind of dialogue with everyone that comes through and we really work at getting those questions out and then always saying, hey, you know, what kind of suggestions or what kind of things aren't we looking at that maybe you're hearing about that, that we need to be taking a look at here so it can better support uh, your operation? Because we always want to be, you know, every time, you know, we think maybe we have the best ideas or, you know, the things like that, but until you actually listen to your customer, um, you may not be hitting the marks. We try to ask everyone that comes through, maybe what of our demonstrations or research are really, I think, moving things forward for you, and then what isn't, and then what could we add that might be really beneficial to you 
in the future. Now, with that, do you do you work very close or much with with the the academic side? Then we do have some collaborations uh, with, in particular, we work the most with the University of Nebraska Lincoln. So they've got an extension or research and extension center only forty miles away at North Platte. So we do some cooperative trials uh, with them, and then we also work with Kansas State University on some longer-term projects. So one of the things we do out of the Learning Center on that kind of sustainability initiative is we have some sites we've set up that are geared to be like a 10-year long-term rotation study where we're, you know, we're doing different tillage practices, no-till versus till. There may be strip-till in the mix, cover crops. And we're looking at uh, multiple crop rotations in there, and we're wanting to study what that does to soil systems after 10 years. So we're cooperating with uh, Kansas State University to get all that research done. And we're kind of a hub of it here at Gothenburg, but we've got it spread all across the United States, really. So we have, I'd say, pretty deep collaborations with our, our university partners here. Nice. Well, you know, the, the, the other thing that kind of comes to mind from a, a research center and in, in, in my thoughts anyway is around sustainability and just general stewardship of the land. Uh, what are some of those ways uh, that, that you're working to continue to drive sustainability or maybe try finding some of those new practices that we can start incorporating in? Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that we try to highlight with all of our groups we bring through would be for the most part, unless we're looking at it in a study um, or have a particular reason, when a grower comes out here, they're going to see, you know, usually strip till or a reduced tillage practice like that um, on our irrigated acres, and they're almost exclusively going to see uh, no-till on our dryland acres. So that's one thing is just that when they come, you know, they maybe aren't always hearing that message, but they're seeing that uh, out there in the field. So that would be one thing and. We've really done a lot of that since day one. And then the other one is we're trying to integrate or showcase integrating more and more cover crops uh, into the system. Out here, we've done a lot with, you know, cereal rye and winter wheat, and now we're starting to put um, more mixes out there as we figure out what plant species and parts of those cover crop mixes are going to are gonna work. I guess out here in the West, it's, it's a little bit, you know, drier environment. Uh, very cold winters, very hot summers to deal with, depending on when you plant the cover crop. So kind of one of those pieces is they always see it out in the field and that it would be a part of what we talk about in some of our demos would relate to, you know, tillage versus no-till or cover crops versus not and advice on cover crops. So, you know, they, they always see it and they do hear some about it uh, when they visit the learning center. Well, a, a lot of times, you know, to change farming practices or start trying something new, seeing is believing, right? Because uh, a lot of the, a lot of times, the question is, will it work on on my farm, right? And uh, and so for the farmers around you all uh, to be able to see those types of practices that are happening, that are being successful, I would imagine that uh, that that helps those folks, you know, say, hey, let's let's try forty acres over here, or thirty acres over here. Yeah, and I think it really has. And I, I mean, I don't want to just say it's it's what we've done at the Learning Center. It's been a lot of work over years by, um, at least on that irrigated side, working a lot with, with strip till and reduced tillage on our irrigated acres to where, you know, when we started here in 2009, most of the fields around were conventional till uh, in some respect. 
um, high-speed discs or really heavy vertical tillage, I would say, where today it's almost exclusively strip till or no-till on our irrigated acres. So in like, we've been here like 13 years, that span, you've really seen that change in what farmers are doing. And I think we played some part in that, but obviously it's been that, you know, their neighbor tries it out, they've seen it here, they start to have success with it. And it's really taken off from a, you know, management standpoint, um, the success farmers are having with some of those practices. Well, I, I would imagine in those in those 13 years, Mark, that you've seen and been a part of some really exciting experiments and, and trials and research and things of that nature. What, what would be at the top of your list that you've been a part of? I would say at the top of my list or, or the most fun to look at really has been where uh, we're looking at what's going on below ground with corn. So the above ground part, that's easy to measure. How tall is your plant? What's the yield? But if we really want to dive into maybe how a plant's going to respond in a limited water or where it really has to go deep for water, we want to look at the root system. So we've got a lot of research work where we actually take a backhoe and we dig down um, four feet, five feet, six feet. I think we've seen roots to like over a hundred inches under some of our corn here at the learning oh, center. Wow. It, it really is fun to look at product differences, um, you know, and really get that picture of what's going on below ground. And it, it isn't always about necessarily how deep all the roots are, but just how much root mass is below ground on some of those corn products that we consider to be, you know, really good under drought stress or in a tough scenario where they got to dig deep for water uh, versus those plants with weaker root systems and how they perform in some of those situations. So I, you know, that, that's really one of the most exciting ones because it's, it's really hard to look at anywhere else. And we're willing to rent a backhoe, have some people come in and help us do the root digs and, and root characterizations of some of our corn products. Now, now, one thing I've always been told is that you know, uh, if if corn goes through a, a dry spell, then it'll it'll sink roots down even deeper, and and then it has better standability later on in the year. Is is all of that is, is that factual, or or is a is a plant going to put the roots down that it's going to put down? So, if I read the scientific papers, it's a little bit up for debate, um, but it, it does seem like. Plants, if they're an environment where they need to, to access water, they will root down deeper to go after it. Now, the, the thing is, you have to have some subsoil moisture. You've got to have moisture for those roots to go after, to go deep. If you're in a situation where it's just completely dry, corn roots aren't really going to grow into a dry soil because there's not a reason to go there. They're, they're not going to be able to get water. They're not going to be able to get nutrients. But certainly if it gets dry on the surface, you know, I believe they're going to start using some of that lower root system and focus maybe some growth and energy on it. But it is, if you read the scientific papers, it, it is a little bit up for debate. Um, but I've also seen where, and they don't necessarily know why, but there's a growing body of research that says if, if plants are stressed early in the season, it seems like if drought comes back later in the season, they do a better job in that scenario. Oh. Like they're just geared to respond and, you know, they have a better, 
I don't know, they, they just respond better or they perform better in that later stressful environment if they've had some early season drought stress. So that's another interesting field of work that I've seen. I think some of that data actually came out of like the University of Illinois. And no kidding. They're, they're concerned about, you know, this year is not the case, but really a lot of early season moisture. Your corn doesn't have any stress early season. If it gets stressed end of the season, then it'll crash. Where if it gets some stress early, it's more prepared for the stress late. And they don't have everything figured out about it, but that's something that I've, I've been reading about. Well, if early stress is good for corn, we should have some pretty good <laughs> corn out there. So uh, we've been in a, in a pretty pretty dry area around here. We've had a, a few sprinkles, but uh, not a not a ton. So put it that way. So yeah, it it's definitely a dry year in in the east, in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of that too, I mean, I know that that your area out there has has been. I I, I want to say that you guys went through a pretty hard drought last year, uh, and then were have been fairly dry at the beginning of this year. Um, I mean, that can just be an incredibly you know difficult challenge for farmers. What are some of the recommendations and things that you're seeing on on how to manage through some of that, especially like when you start thinking about dry land and and things of that nature. Yeah, so we had in, I think, 2021, it, it might have been the second or third driest year ever here in Gothenburg. So we were, I think, somewhere around 12 inches or 13 inches on the year, and our average rainfall is about, right at about 21 uh, inches in a growing season. So definitely a lot of stress. So some of the changes we had to make management-wise irrigation is, I really hate to uh, recommend irrigating early, but sometimes to get your crop to germinate, to get it started, like you couldn't plant deep enough to get to moisture if moisture was there. So you had to take the approach of, you know, watering some early to actually get the crop up and get it started, incorporate your your herbicides and things like that. And we actually, at the start of this season, we saw a lot of that. And it's the only two years I've seen um, early years I've seen in Gothenburg since I've been here where we've had to do early season watering to actually get crops that were early planted to germinate. So that's one thing is, is making that switch to you're going to have to water some early. And then if you're restricted on water, you're going to have to really think about how do I meter that water out to the rest of the season um, to do the best job I can. And then on dry land, um, that can be a situation where you think about actually even not planting because it's just so dry, you're not going to get a crop to germinate. So from a management perspective, um, you can do a couple things. You can plant something and hope it rains and germinates, or you can wait until it rains and find a way to take advantage of that moisture, whether it's, it may not be corn, it may not be soybeans, but it might be a feed crop that cattle producers uh, really need in these conditions where they're not seeing a lot of pasture growth and stuff like that. So it it really is a challenging scenario. And it's not one where you think, well, am I going to rotate to corn or soybeans or wheat? It might be kind of a whole spectrum of different crops or management strategies you have to go to. Wow. Yeah, no, that's uh that that that's an that's an interesting take, right? I mean, to to really that that that's a big change management, you know. I mean, to to change your whole thought process on on even like uh the 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 type of crop you're putting in. Yeah, it really is a it really is a, a challenge and one that really changes depending on what happens with the weather. So 
we're kind of at a dividing line where Gothenburg's actually been really fortunate this growing season. Um, I think we've had a total of about eight inches of rain since the 1st of May, which for us is is really quite a bit of, above normal. Uh, we were looking at dryland acres where the wheat wasn't going to make it, even here at the Learning Center. You know, do we do we try planting a different dryland crop? And then we got the rain, so we went to corn and soybeans in our typical crops. And on West, they did the same thing. So they were looking at, didn't know what they were going to do, probably didn't have seed bought for those acres. Then we started to get rain, and then you got to go out, you got to source your corn seed or, or do things like that to, to really take advantage of that moisture. And you, you know, rain just flips your perspective as a farmer, just like that. Like, you can be, you know, have your plan, and it's really a terrible situation from drought. And then once you get rain, you can really flip what you're going to do and, you know, go from kind of a year that's a disaster to, okay, well, we're going to raise some cash crops and things like that, um, take advantage of the moisture that we're getting. I, I never really thought about, Mark, the uh, the issue on just a logistical side, though, right? Uh, if all of a sudden that, you know, like I said, that rain comes and you got to kind of change your plan up, you, you probably didn't have things purchased <laughs> yeah. ahead of time or applied down or w- whatever the case is. It, yeah, you, you want to have a good relationship with your with the people you're buying seed from uh, because they may have to pull it in from other parts of the country if if they don't have it in stock or things like that. Maybe the rain comes a little later. You're looking to shorter season corn. I mean, there's just a lot of things that play into once you get rain, you guys really start making phone calls and trying to make things happen to see see what you can source, see what you can get and and move on from there. I mean, now it doesn't always take a lot of corn. We plant some really dry land areas at like 10,000 seeds per acre. You've got like oh, wow. 18, 20 inches sometimes in between corn plants, which is, I know, totally foreign uh, if you're in the east, but it still does. You still got to source that corn seed to put on those acres. You know, it, it's funny on the on the one irrigation system that we have on our, it's a center pivot on a on 160-acre uh, field, uh, the dry land acres, it's all now in CRP ground, but when we used to plant them, I mean, this is just like pure blow sand, right? And you're talking 70 bushel corn on a, <laughs> on a good year, you know? And, uh, and that's where dad and I had the conversation a long time ago was what's the least amount of population that you can still achieve 70, 80 bushel, right? And, and we started getting to that point where we would drop that, that population all the way down. I think we were down to like, 12 or 14,000 yep. on the on the dry land and in the center pivot we were probably 34 to 35,000 in the in the center of it. Yeah, so that's just the management strategy you got to go to and you say that 70 bushels that's really right in the wheelhouse of what some of the dry land guys further west are are actually planting for, you know, they get 100 to 120. That's an amazing year to them. You know, zero's obviously the failure <laughs> point. And then 70 bushels might be an average crop in there. Dumb. Well, speaking of rain, uh, I've heard of this thing called a rainout shelter. And, and I have to ask, what is, what is the rainout shelter at the, uh, at the research center? So it really is something that it came out of us wanting to showcase drought stress. And when we built the facility in like 2008, 2009, those were some of the wettest years Gothenburg ever had. So we started to say, okay... We've got a great facility here, but we can't showcase drought stress. So 
we had some people in Monsanto at the time, uh, engineers that had experience with, you know, ways to create drought stress. And we came up with basically a 180 foot or 160 foot long by 80 foot wide steel building on rails um, that's, that's totally automated. So when it, when it rains, it detects the raindrops and it actually will move that building. You know, it sits off the plots like 200 feet back and then it rolls forward 200 feet um, when it rains to make it so irrigation is really the only way, or if I wanted to rain in there, you know, you can leave it open, but yeah. that irrigation is the only way you're managing the water of those plots. So you can really generate um, generate a lot of drought stress on a uh, a year-to-year basis. You don't have the influence of Mother Nature and, and rain coming in at different times to kind of, you, you hate to say rain's a problem, but it can really mess up your treatments when you're looking at, at measuring what corn or soybeans do under drought stress. Well, I would just assume that that's probably a one-of-one one and it's no chance of being sold to anybody else because who, who, who wants that, right? It, it, yes. <laughs> now, we have when we have farmers come through, we really highlight that it would make a great machine shed because you could park anything in at whatever angle you wanted to and then the building would just back off and you could um, oh, back out. Well, there we go. <laughs> but yeah, it is a one-of-one one, uh, deal, but it... it you know, one of the things I worried about when we built it was it really seems excessive, right? You're, you're, you're doing something, you're only protecting about like a third of an acre to study drought on. But what I've seen from farmers is they really appreciate that level of investment in drought stress and investment in understanding maybe how products are going to perform in their, their limited irrigated acres or what help you can give them on their limited irrigation acre, irrigated acres. So they don't really look at it as a, you know, something you just spent a lot of money on. They really look at it as a value to them where you can produce data that helps them out in the field. Well, that's a perfect segue there, Mark, because I was going to jump into data on that and uh, and really talk about just how Gothenburg uses data and specifically out there maybe in the in some of the trials. Are you, are you utilizing a platform like Climate Field View? Yes, we are. So... Some of our small plot research equipment doesn't necessarily fit into climate field view yet, but we do a lot of our work in strip trials. And of course, when you think about what we manage, we've got basically 100 small fields that are in research trials. So you've got to have a way uh, to keep track of that information. What date was you know fertilizer applied? What date was it sprayed? Planted, like all that information we bring in through uh, climate field view uh, with our planners. And then if we use our strip plot combine, we get the yield data back um, through climate field view that way as well. We actually go through and make little field regions for all of our fields. And then any work that we need done at the learning center, we can put pins in, put in yellow pins. That means we're post-spraying and you put in that pin exactly what needs sprays and everybody knows where they're going and what to do. So we've got yeah, a lot of inroads into climate field view that we're kind of tapping into to make our operations better. We get more data back. We record more of the information more timely. And it also helps us in our workload management, getting everything done and people where they need to be out there in the field. I would assume that all of you share the same account. So if you drop the pen, everybody else can see it and see the notes attached to it. Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, and we, we got to be careful not to give everyone access to that account because you can delete things <laughs> and stuff like that. But yes, everyone shares it, and they know you're you're not to delete uh, certain things unless you can. But yeah, you can. You, you know, you think about that from a management perspective. Everyone here just can look at their phone. They know what trial they're in. They know what needs done uh, that day, and they know what's been done. Maybe that's just as important as uh, what needs done out there. And and it's all on a map, right? You know, if you just send out an email that says, hey, do this, this, and this in these different locations, that's only part of the story. If you're dealing with someone new or not familiar with it, they may not know where they're going, and it may be a little bit of a challenge for to fight it. With the field view, you've got that geospatial aspect where they know where they're at uh, out there in the field all the time. You know, on a, on a previous episode, we talked about like old school tech, right? And And to get to... You know, probably any kind of field level out there dropping a pen, you would have had to have had, you know, back in the day, like a an HP handheld or a, a Compaq or, you know, one of those one of those handheld devices hooked up to a GPS somewhere. And it's just a, it's just amazing that now you just take your phone out and away you go. Well, I, I was even thinking about that um, just the other day. I, I happened to see a PowerPoint that was made like in 2003. Right, and it, it's got pictures in it and stuff, and you're like, I don't think we appreciate it probably anymore. But how difficult it was at that time to like get pictures, you know, off of a digital camera onto your computer into a PowerPoint presentation. Where now, you know, your, your phone, your your tablet, it's all connected to the cloud. You, you can really upload your photos in real time. It's just. I don't think we stop and appreciate it uh, maybe enough, but it really is something that, yeah, from a field equipment perspective and the things you can record and do, um, it's, you know, probably light years beyond maybe even what we thought was was possible about that long ago. Oh, I, absolutely. You talk about pictures. Yeah. I mean, first off, who was carrying a digital camera around with them, right? And then you'd have to have a computer to to, to offload it and send it. I think at that point in time, I was probably, uh, I think the most pictures I took were probably on one of those uh, disposable cameras that you used to buy <laughs> and send in. So I think that's what a majority of, of my growing up was on. Yeah. And, and even like you think of PowerPoints, you used to have to split them onto multiple, multiple disks or something like that oh, if they yeah. had any size to them at all. It's just wild to think about what you can do now. Yep, absolutely. Well, I tell you what, the 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 last thing I'd like to to really look at, you know, you talked about a little bit around this year and and catching, you know, a, a lot more rain than what you have in the past. Uh, I mean, are crops looking good around you overall for the most part? Then, you know, I'd say really good, um, a lot better than what we were looking at early. Even you know, a lot of wheat we had written off and things has has really responded. We're far enough north; it's responded pretty well. To the rain, the dryland crops look pretty good. And for the most part, we haven't even in our pivot quarters right here seen a lot of stress show up. It's really been, I'd say just today, we're, we're like a 25 mile an hour south wind and 93 degrees. Now you're starting to see a little stress in different areas of the field. But for the most part, right here, everything looks good. And it's, it's really strange. You know, typically the west is where you see a lot more drought stress. You lose, I think the math is you lose one inch of precipitation every 25 miles you drive east in Nebraska from like the west side of the state to the east side of the state. And it's so strange driving east to, to Lincoln from here 
and seeing the drought stress just get worse and worse and worse out there in the field. So we really are fortunate, and right here, things look pretty good. Well, the 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 last thing I'll uh, ask on a on a on a important question here would be, what's the one piece of advice, the best piece of advice that uh, the you know the, the farming advice that you've got that uh, maybe you'd like to share with the listeners here? I so I I've really come down to don't change everything you do or really fundamentally what you do because of one year's events. I would say it can be something that can help you manage stuff, but we kind of always chase the tail of what happened last year and do a, I mean, it's okay to do some planning, but really radically change things based on what one year's climate did. It really is something that, you know, if nine years out of 10, it worked, it's probably a good idea. You don't want to have something, you know, one year be a problem and then really change everything about your farm, thinking that that weather events or that climate's going to be the same next year. It really is, uh, you know, we kind of think in one-year increments sometimes in farming, it really is that big picture, what happens over 10 years, 15, 20, kind of the span of your operation. I think that is fantastic advice, so... Well, I tell you what, now we're going to get into the uh, into the rapid fire. So uh, okay. this or that, Mark. I'm going to give you two options, and you just give me the first option that uh, that you like here. So the first one, probably the most important one, if I had to say, auger wagon or grain cart? It's a grain cart. Yes, it's a grain cart, a gravity wagon is what maybe some people call a grain cart in the East, but for us, the wagon with the auger is called a grain cart. All right, all right, I'll chalk <laughs> that up as a loss, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving here. How about uh, mountain or beach? I would say mountain for me. All right, all right. makes sense. You're, you're getting closer to the Rockies over there. <laughs> how, about, uh, how about tea or coffee? I just say both. doesn't matter what it is. I'll take tea and coffee as long as they're unsweetened. <laughs> unsweetened and caffeinated, right? Yep. <laughs> how about uh, the last one here that I'm going to ask? Mac or PC? PC? I might like a Mac, but I can't use my wife's Mac computer for nothing, so I'm going to have to stick with a PC. All right. All right. Well, I guess I got, I'm going to do a follow-up. I said that was the last, but what about <laughs> Apple or Android? Uh, yeah, that is the one thing about a, a Mac is I like the Apple environment for a lot of things. All right. All right. You'd be surprised. Actually, I think like uh, we're still in the minority with, uh, with Apple. Uh, most people I've been uh, talking to, they keep saying Android. I didn't know there's that many Android users out there. So, yeah, I, you know. It, I've been Apple the whole time, and I don't really know why, but but that's that's what I've been. Went from a flip phone to, I think, like an iPhone 5 or something like that. Nice. Nice. Yep. Well, Mark, I tell you what, I just want to say thank you for for taking time out of your busy day to to jump on the show with us. This has been a great conversation. Is there uh, anything else that, uh, that we miss that you'd like to cover? No, I guess not, other than, hey, we are open to visitors. So out here at the Learning Center, um, certainly feel free to look us up if you're ever traveling west on I-80 through Nebraska. We'd really like to, you know, have you stop by and, you know, kind of show you around what we have here at the Learning Center. Well, that sounds great. Well, I appreciate it, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Clint. It was really nice visiting with you today. 
Hey, big thanks to Mark for joining us here today. That was a great conversation. And thanks to you, the listener. If you like this podcast, be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend or two as well. And as always, Around the Farm is brought to you by Climate Field View. It can be found wherever you find your podcast at. And until next time, we'll see you around the farm. <laughs>